Our lesson entitled, Our Israel Identity Heritage. This will be lesson number three in our series on our Israel Identity Heritage. A novelty or a life worthy of sacrifice. As an Israelite, do you hold the Israel truth as a novelty? Something that's good, noble, sounds reasonable. You've searched it out historically, biblically, with all kinds of hours of study. Beyond all question, you know it's true. The question is, what do you do with the truth you have as an Israelite? How does it apply to your life? Is it a lifestyle that you live by, or is it a novelty? You just added it on to whatever else you believed and merrily lived life. How much does the Israel truth impact your life, and is it worthy of a sacrifice. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 51 for just a moment. And that will be our point of beginning today as we turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 51. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you today that we may seek your favor and your benediction upon this lesson today to these Israelites who have assembled here from Throughout southwest Missouri, Lord God, bless them, everyone, every man, woman, boy, girl, and child, and infant, in and out of the womb. Bless them all, and Father in heaven, to the dear family of Israelites, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ scattered across the American homeland and that of Canada beyond the oceans to other Western Israelite places of the earth. God bless this family and greetings to all of you from all of us. And may this lesson help us all. Father in heaven, we are so dependent upon you. Please send your Holy Spirit to guide us and help us along the way. And we will forever remember that all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory will forever and ever accrue to Thee. O blessed Christ, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If we could all look at Isaiah 51. Thank you. How many brought a Bible today? Hold it up high. How many have a Bible in the house? Whoa, look at this house of Bibles. How many are reading from the King James Bible? Oh my goodness, praise God. Now, we're not going to be opposed if anyone's reading from another translation in your private study, uh, in your searching the truth, but we are without apologies announcing to the whole wide world that the Bible of record for us is the only Bible that came down through the Davidic line of kings the only, the only Bible authorized and requested by a Davidic king, and that is the King James Bible of 1611 that was started much earlier than 1611, finally finished 
then. So here we go. We're in Isaiah 51, and these two verses that lead us out are two of the most profound verses in the Bible. Let's read them together and see if you share the great truth that God is telling us from Isaiah the prophet, chapter 51, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord Jehovah. Look unto the rock when she are hewn, and to the hole of the pit when she are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. And we all know that Abraham and Sarah are two of the very most prominent people in Scripture. And they were preceded, of course, by the very prominent man and woman, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, followed by Abraham and Sarah, are significant people in the pages of the Bible. Adam and Eve are the, the parents, of course, of all Adam. And all the race of Adam, the great river of people that flowed out of Adam and Eve, the white Caucasian race, and God diverted a small little tributary away from that river when he called Abraham. And he called Sarah, who shared the same DNA. And beginning with Abraham and Sarah, God began to build a pedigreed people. Now we live in a world today that really beats the drums about white people and their privilege. Now most of the white people, in fact all the white people that I know, would tell you that growing up they were not very privileged. They had to work for what they received. They had to roll up their sleeves and they had to earn their stripes. So I'm not sure what they mean by privilege. As someone said, I'll be happy to sell you my white privilege card if you want to pay for it what I paid for. Hard work, devotion, dedication, sacrifice, and commitment. That's where my white privilege came from. So the idea that we're born into privilege just because we're white is what really, really uh, is the theme of the social world that we live in America today. But I'd like to remind you people that it is true and it is undeniable that there's a people that are descended from Adam and Eve in the river that was diverted out of the Adamic race, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, who are a special people. Now, I do not know how we measure those people. I'm talking about Israelites now. All Israelites are descended from Abraham and Sarah, but not all the sons of Abraham 
can be counted as Israel, you know that. Abraham was the father of eight sons. He was the father of Ishmael, not an Israelite, not incorporated, included into the covenants. He was the son of the bondwoman, Hagar. Abraham was also the father of six sons born to his wife, Keturah, following the death of Sarah. Those six sons became prominent in history. And they left a track record through the Caucasian world, which is a story of its own. But they are not counted as Israelites. So the, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 9. Neither are they all Israelites who are of Israel. Just because they're the seed of Abraham doesn't mean they're Israelites. All true, genuine, pedigreed Israelites are descended from the one child of promise, promised to Abraham and Sarah, and everybody knows that that is Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Not in the seed of Ishmael, not in the seed of any of the sons of Keturah, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now we affirmed last week, I trust and pray that we did, affirmed that genetic, genetic DNA does not save you. But I will posit this in this way, and then I'm sure some will want to challenge me, maybe not in this congregation, but somewhere. If we were to say that election is by genetics, and salvation is by grace, we would be theologically right. Because the election, the people chosen in election before the foundation of the world are a designated people that we call Israelites. They are the people that are qualified as the elect. How do we know that? The Bible says that. Israel, mine elect. Now, when God called Israel out from the rest of Adam's family, he had called Abraham out from the rest of the Adamic family. So if you think of the whole race of Adam as a big circle, when we call Abraham and Sarah out of that big circle, we put them in a smaller circle think you're building concentric circles. And then when we call Abraham and Sarah, we know that Abraham being the father of eight sons, the only son that counts for the seed, the seed of promise that is, is Isaac. So by the time we finish, our little circle in the center is very small. It begins with Isaac. But God promises to do something beyond all human understanding with the seed of Isaac. He tells us in the words of Genesis 24, verse 60, 
When Rebecca's getting ready to leave home, her family pronounces a prophetic word upon her life, and they say to Rebecca, Be thou the mother of thousands of millions of people, and let thy seed possess the gate of their enemies. That's a profound statement, because what that verse is telling us is that the seed of Isaac is going to multiply and expand so significantly that one day it will comprise the majority of all Caucasian people within the circle. Now, I know this could be challenged by some historians, but I believe the seed of Isaac was destined to outnumber all the descendants of Ham and Ephraim. We're not saying that Ephraim, Christian. We're not saying that Japheth and Ham did not have their own uh, descendants and they're on the earth today among white people. But the predominant, the predominant people within the Caucasian race became Israelites. And I'd like for you to think and hold on to this verse from Isaiah 27, verse 6. They that come of Jacob, they that come of Jacob. Now that's going to be Israelites, will blossom and bud. And who wants to finish that sentence? Isaiah 27, 6. Israel will blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. Abraham was told that his seed, the star seed of Abraham, would fill the earth as numberless, as multitudinous as the stars of the sky. That was an announcement that the seed of Isaac would one day become the prominent white people on planet earth. And in 1900, if you were to look at a map of the world in 1900, beloved, you would find that all of Europe, Scandinavia, the British Isles, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, some of South Africa, and related places in the earth were all white, predominant race of people that dominated the earth in 1900 were white people. They dominated the earth throughout the 1900s. But they're growing weaker and weaker and weaker today, and we know that. So the Bible tells us as remnant Israelite believers, hearken, hearken to me, Isaiah says. Look to the rock from whence ye are hewn. Go back. Look at your ancestors. Now this would be a this would be a message that most Christians today would find foreign. If they walked into a building called a church and the preacher said, "You are the people of the book. You are the people that the Bible was written to for and about." The word Israel appears more than 2000 500 times in the Bible. It is the most generic name for any people in the Bible. 
And Israel is a specific designated people and it's undeniable that they are a special people. No one can deny that. But what does the evidence say? The evidence will tell us that 95% or more of all the greatest inventions of the world came out of the seed that God said would bless all the earth. Israel has blessed the whole wide world. Electricity, air conditioning, every conceivable blessing that you can think about has come out of the people that God promised Abraham he would be a blessing, his offspring would be a blessing to in the entire world. So the, the white people have blessed the whole world. Now what did God tell the white people that he called Israel? You remember these beautiful words from the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you really love these words. And they're only a sampling of the multitude of verses in the Bible that can be added on to the verses found in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. If you'd like to turn in your Bible, this is what God told Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Ye are a holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has called you to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. That's the Bible, folks. Israel was to be a special people above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And when I hear our people today in America arguing about white people being so terrible, well, there is an inherent I'm going to say it this way, there's an inherent jealousy that has built up against the white race in our time of history. It's a natural hatred that has been built up. We are now called the oppressor race. We are called the oppressors. Oh yes, we oppress the American native uh, savages. We oppress the black people. We oppress... We've just been the oppressor people of the earth. Well, let me say this. Wherever we have taken domination of the earth, everybody was blessed wherever we went. Yes, we made a major mistake in the conquest of America. Same mistake Israel made in the conquest of Canaan. Do I have to tell you what that was? Yes, Israel, we Israelites have made our fair shake share of mistakes. And in the conquest of lands, our greatest error was not, not our failure to make a full conquest. Amen. To the degree we left anyone left, they became a thorn, not a, only in our side, but they became woeful unto themselves. Well, I know that is not politically correct teaching, but let's go back to Deuteronomy 7. 
The next verse says, The Lord God did not choose you because you were more in number than any people. When God chose Abraham and Sarah, they certainly wasn't prolific in numbers. In fact, many, many decades go by before Israel even gets jump-started. You know that story well. So God didn't choose us, he tells us, because we were more in number than any people, but because the Lord God loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he sware unto your father Abraham, hath the Lord God loved you and brought you out of bondage, with a mighty hand from, the hand from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. For the Lord our God, he is the true God, the living God, that keepeth covenant and mercy to them that love him to a thousand generations. So the Bible does teach that Israel is a special people. Here's what they forget. To whom much is given, much is required. Because God made Israel a privileged people, he was unsparing in what he required of them. Are you with me? What God promised Israel was equally on their part. He expected Israel to reciprocate by doing and being the people that he required them to be. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, God says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Good question. But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. This is what God required of his people. And if we're going to be a congregation of Israelites, we're, and we're going to be special unto God, called to a position of privilege, yes, it's a privilege to be, to be an Israelite. But it's not a privilege does not, that does not come, up, come without responsibility. With the idea of being Israel comes responsibility. There, 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 it comes with a requirement that we demonstrate a higher lifestyle. That we are going to be a people that will set an example for the rest of the nations of the world. God says it this way in Deuteronomy chapter number 4. He says to Israel, you, will, you shall not add unto the word which I give you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have given you in Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. God also says to Israel, keep therefore and do them, my commandments. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall see and hear these statutes and say, this is a wise and understanding people. And when America 
an exceptional nation, was doing the will of God in large measure. We were looked up to by the entire world as the nation that everybody wanted to come to. And whatever exceptional standing America had, it was only and solely because we were following the laws, the immutable law of Jehovah God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the degree that we begin to diminish that law and stray from it, our exceptionalism begin to fade away. And today we're not an exceptional nation. The light of, of Christ and Christianity has become so dim in this country that our exceptionalism is all but gone. And yet, beloved, America's greatness is still in its pitiful state drawing thousands tens of thousands of people to cross our southern border. God help us. Whatever they want to look for, they're looking, they're looking to America to find whatever they're searching for. And they're, they're swimming across the Rio Grande. They're paying enormous prices to come into this country. They're changing the composition of our country. It's sad. It makes me personally want to become invested in, in going down to the southern border and, and doing something to stop this invasion. But we know that it's the tide of history that's moving because we have turned from our God and God is keeping His promise to us. For God promises Israel over and over again you will lose your privileged status if you fail to keep my commandments. So here's the deal, church. We're an Israelite congregation. We're one of many Israelite bodies that God has called in this time of history. And I'm very sad to tell you that our young people are living in a time when the Israel truth is very scarce in this country in many ways. If they had been young people living in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and even the 50s and 60s, they would have seen tens of thousands of American white people that embrace the Israel truth. But we know that there's been a great spiritual falling away. For many, many reasons, people have just simply turned away from the glorious truth of Israel and the gospel of the kingdom. So if you're one of the very few today living in America that embrace the knowledge of Israel, may you be, may you be blessed is my prayer. And... Uh, I mentioned earlier in this service that one of these days I'm going to read a letter that came to our office this last week, this last weekend. It's from a young man, 22 years old, and he made a statement in one of the paragraphs, would to God that all the young people that go to the house, to the Church of Israel, 
would understand the truth into which they have been born. And he yearned to be in the shoes of the young people of this church. So I don't know what we're going to do with the Israel truth. We live in a world church, and the, and the honest bottom line truth is that we've got to roll up our sleeves and determine to be real soldiers. Because the world does not want this truth to survive. And those who believe this truth will be a target. The target of the enemy will be upon them. So we've got to trust that our walk with Jesus Christ will be strong enough and that we can weld ourselves together as a body and build our own subculture. Yes, build our own subculture. Our children do not need to make friends and become compatible with the young people of the world or they're going to be lost. We have to build a subculture. And that's the way this church is going to survive. I didn't say that you wouldn't be working in the world. Yes, Jesus himself said, I pray not for, for the world. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. John 17. I pray for them, my people. I pray not for the world. He's praying to his father. But I pray for those whom you have given me that they might be saved from the evil. From the evil that's in the world. Love not the world, the Bible tells us. Neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that is of the world. John goes on to tell us in John, the Gospel of 1 John 2, 15, 16, and 17, that his truth abideth forever, and that we should not follow the world. So, congregation, while we're sitting here today, we know that God has given us a wonderful chance, a wonderful opportunity, just by virtue of being able to know that we are Israel. But we've got to be very cautious because we can, we can grow very dull with this message. And we can let it become sort of lost in, a, in the way we look at it. It, it will stop from being a, a primary motivating force. So that's why the words of Isaiah are so, so important. Hearken unto me. Hearken unto me, you that seek righteousness, you that seek the Lord God. And I know that we've all come into this house today to seek the Lord our God. But he said, if you're going to do that, look into the rock from whence ye are hewn. You all know, you're all familiar with a rock quarry where they bring gravel out of the rock. Isaiah says, look to where you've come. Look at the ones who preceded you in time and history. 
Look to Abraham, your father. Look to Sarah. We all need to know that Abraham is our father. Sarah is our mother. We are the children that have been propagated from these two people. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone. Yes, exclusively. God chose Abraham and Sarah out of the great river of Adamic people to build a seed line of people that would multiply into tens of millions of people. And we're living in a time of history, not when Israel was flourishing and dominating the world, but we happen, it's our destiny to have been born when Israel is in retreat and diminishing but that means that our work, our job, our responsibility has ever grown more increasingly demanding. And with those thoughts, beloved, we will turn now to our worksheet and we'll finish it today for, for without question. I'm in the second page of the worksheet. We had just finished talking about the relationship of the law, Israel's responsibility under law, and how law works with grace. So we're going to move along now, and we are on point number five, and we're going to shift gears now because there is one apostle that God chose among all the apostles to teach us what it means to really be an Israelite. We can find no better author in Scripture, no better inspired word than those of St. Paul the Apostle. Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10 are considered to be the primary identity Israel chapters of of. Paul's writings. Certainly not all, but they are the principal ones. So we're going to turn now to Romans chapter number 10 in your Bible. Romans chapter number 10. And we'll begin reading at verse number 1. So I'm on page number 5. St. Paul tells us precisely how we are saved in Romans 10, 1 through 10. And we're going to join together in reading these verses, just 10 simple verses. So we will summarize what we're going to read here in a moment. Well, let's all join together now in the reading of Scripture. We are in Romans chapter number 10, and we are beginning at verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now stop. You know, that's a challenging statement. Is that your wish today? St. Paul had a great passion. The single greatest desire of St. Paul was to see the salvation of Israel do we share this same 
passion. That word passion. Do we share the same passion? How passionate are we about our faith? Come on now, how passionate are we? Do we ever attempt to teach or evangelize? Come on now. Do we ever attempt to teach or evangelize the lost souls of this world? So let's read Romans 10 now, verses 1 through 10. Continue on in verse number 2. For I bear them record, Israel, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now stop. It's great to have zeal for what you believe. It's great to be zealous. I remember one time a really wonderful family arrived here from the West. And they were zealous about being Israel. I mean, that family were so zealous and on fire having heard about the Israel truth. That they literally, they literally seemed to be overflowing with enthusiasm. And when they arrived here, they were so zealous about their belief in the Israel truth that they believed that the greatest priority of life for them was to obey every jot and tittle of God's law. Now, that, that's good. I'm not going to argue with them on that. However, when they were not busy trying to keep the law, they were judging everyone else's law-keeping. So they became judges of this congregation. That someone was keeping less than an absolute perfect Sabbath, or many other things. Well, the long and the short is that they burnt out. They had a burnout. They got burned out on the law because the law became a substitute for God. It became a substitute for the righteousness found only in Jesus Christ. And last week we really tried to emphasize that genetics is not going to save us. The law is not going to save us. Being zealous for what we believe is not going to save us. Until we have been to the cross in repentance, in confession, and we have found Jesus and the reality of who He is. We have not come to the righteousness of God. Notice it says, Israel's famous for having a zeal. A zeal, but not according to knowledge. You see how dangerous it is to have zeal without knowledge. It is so dangerous to have zeal without knowledge that St. Paul got wrapped up in promoting and delivering Christians into prison. 
And you can become so zealous as an Israelite over your own heritage that you forget what your responsibility is in being an Israelite and finding Christ as your personal Savior. So Paul goes on to say in verse 3, For they, they is in reference to Israel, being ignorant. Now that's kind of a challenge. St. Paul is saying, they being ignorant. Nobody wants to be ignorant. It's not, it's not a good thing to be called charged with ignorance. They, Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own, their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to what? The righteousness of God. Now, folks, I want all of us to know that if you can look at Romans 10, verse 3, and look in the mirror and say, All my righteousness, altogether the best that I am, compared to the righteousness of the God who gave me life, who created the world, who established His laws in time and history, my righteousness compared to God's, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, are but filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 4 through 6. Our righteousness are as a pile of filthy rags. That's our righteousness. No matter how perfect we, do, we try to live, we can never achieve and make ourselves right with God by our own efforts and work. We have to submit to the righteousness God provided in the person of Jesus Christ, who was perfect and righteous in every way. And when we make our peace with God, we confess our sins. And remember the Bible says, Romans 5 verse 8, But God commended His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, He loved us. God loved you before you ever dared to know or to love God. God called Israel from the, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 4, chapter 1, verse 4. Called in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Christ before we were ever conceived. God had His mind on Israel from before the foundation of the world. 
He knew who the elect would be before he created anyone. He knew that out of Adam and Eve would come a seed line. Ten generations between Adam and Noah. Ten, another ten generations between Shem and Abraham. And in that twenty generations, God is building a perfect pedigreed lineage out of which he will draw Abraham and Sarah to begin the pedigreed family that we call Israel. So uh, St. Paul is telling us now that if Israel will submit themselves to the righteousness that only God can provide, that is the true path to salvation. So let's look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law, the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now the word end is a Greek word, telos, T-E-L-O-S. And it means that the law was the goal, the objection, or the completion of the mission that Christ came to fulfill in bringing what we will call the definition of true righteousness. True righteousness was unknown after the fall until Jesus appeared on the scene of history. No one was ever righteous between the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden Yes, Adam and Eve before the fall were righteous. But after sin entered into the world, there was not a single righteous soul that had achieved righteousness on their own. Enoch was translated not because of his own righteousness, because he walked with God and God took him. Elijah was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. Not because of his righteousness, but because Elijah had found righteousness at an altar. Just like Abel was declared righteous because of his sacrifice. Abel's righteousness is declared in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, to have come, his righteousness was derived from the sacrificial blood offering he made. He acknowledged that only the righteousness of God could bring him salvation. And he offered the acceptable sacrifice, bloody sacrifice required to achieve that righteousness. So, now, here is where a lot of Christians have stumbled. Good, well-meaning preachers have stumbled at Romans 10, 4, and fallen into a theological canyon from which they could not recover from. Because they believe that when it says, for Christ is the end of the law, they believe that ended the law. No, 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 no. Church, our God vindicated 
the authenticity and righteousness of his own law by the death of Christ. Jesus was made a curse, a curse that the righteousness of God's law might be upheld. It is nothing less than blasphemy to say that Jesus' death on the cross ended the law. It vindicated the law. It authenticated the law. Amen. That's what the death of Jesus did. Jesus, it, let, me, let me explain it this way. If you were to be guilty of an infraction of a law here in Vernon County, let's say you did something that was against the law. Let's say you requisitioned something from someone's house or yard that they did not know about. You just plain stole it. Somebody stole something and the evidence of a camera identified the thief. Let's say the thief was me. I am charged with stealing. I go before a judge in the Vernon County Court. But suppose that a good neighbor, knowing that I'm destitute, let's say I'm destitute, he knows anything else, I'm going to go to jail. So he goes up, unbeknown to me, and tells the judge that whatever the fine or assessment will be, if a jail sentence, he is going to serve the time. If it is money, he himself will provide the restitution. So the judge comes finds me guilty and says, you're free because someone has paid your debt. I walk out of the courtroom. It didn't mean that the law against stealing was not still a law. The fact that... Our sins were nailed to the cross. And that's where our righteousness comes from. And went all the way to Calvary to pay the debt on our sin. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is a beautiful verse, church. Try to... This is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, God, God our Father, hath made him... Who knew no 
righteousness. have ever lived on this earth who was And tear it apart, verse by verse, and see it is the most torturous type of death ever devised. Devised by the Romans for their... Watched him impaled on the cross. A little child that nursed her, that she knew was perfect, is being his people. He, God, hath made him to be sin for us who knew no prophet Isaiah is so beautiful. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's yours, that's mine. Our iniquities. He was chastised. Real hurriedly now, let's begin at verse number 10. I mean, sorry, and verse number 5. Together, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the deep. Christ went down into the deep. Where did he descend? Into hell. That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That, look at verse 9 and 10. 
they will be among the most important words that you will know in this world when you stand before the judgment of God. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Thou shalt be saved. And back to number five, what are we saved from? If we have never underlined the word wrath, wrath, that is to say the judgment of God upon unconfessed sin, and a coming to judgment, we are in desperate need of knowing the implication of wrath. John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath, W-R-A-T-H, the wrath of God abideth on them. Romans 5, 9, much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from. What are we saved from? The wrath, the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. A bundle of millions of Christians have no idea what they're saved from. They need to know what they're saved from and what they are saved for. They are saved from the wrath and judgment of God and they're saved for citizenship in a wonderful kingdom and eternity thereafter. That's what they're saved for. If we have never underlined the word wrath, that is to say the judgment of God upon unconfessed sin and a coming judgment we are in desperate need of knowing, knowing the implications of wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And this is what early Christians were instructed to do, to wait for the Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That word wrath is all over the New Testament. It's a word that seldom dealt with from pulpits today because it's a warning of the judgment of God upon unconfessed sin. And it's a powerful, powerful word. So we look then and we read on we know, and number two, Israelites are generally zealous about many things. Israel tends to be ignorant of God's righteousness and more concerned with emphasizing their own righteousness own righteousness 
Worst of all, too many Israelites have not submitted themselves, St. Paul's language, to the righteousness of God. So the word righteousness finds its way into three blanks. We dare not forget that Jesus Christ, in living a sinless life, is the end of the law, meaning Christ fulfilled. the sinner to Christ. Ought till the last repentance. Number three, the sinner's path. Spiritual death to spiritual life. Salvation is given by St. Paul, Romans 9 through 10, a verbal confession that he and that God raised him from the dead. For with the mouth man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And finally, there at the very last, the apostolic writers. Did you know that 90% of the entire New Testament, every book in the New Testament excepting St. Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, and the Gospel of Mark, I believe are the only books not written, inspired, and given to one of the apostles. The apostolic writers of the New Testament Peter, John, James, Matthew, Jude, and St. Paul, all apostles are called with the prophets the foundation of the church, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. The apostles then wanted all Israelites to know that Christ incarnate is head of the church. Christ incarnate head of the church, the apostles wanted Israel to know that Jesus Christ holds preeminence. The last blank is preeminence. Holds preeminence in all things. So we're going to end this lesson today, church. And we're going to conclude with a simple statement. In the words of Scripture, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And that is the way we are saved.
not by anything that we will do. So, as a final thought, we don't call, we don't have an altar call per se here. Because the Bible says, you have not chosen me, in the words of Jesus, John 15, 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now, if you believe that God has chosen you, and you have never with your mouth confessed Jesus Christ, and with your heart believed that God raised him from the dead, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Shall we be standing?